Hi there. Thanks for joining us and welcome. My name is Josh and this is Dharma Punks New York, reaching you live from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. If you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, everything I do is entirely by donation. And the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC. The PayPal button is on the website, dharmapunksnyc.com, as well as on the podcast site. And tonight, we're going to be talking about um, the role of feelings originating in bodily responses to the world around us and the role they play in our behaviors and our decisions and pretty much much of our internal lives the implications of the singular influence of feelings on our behaviors and how we can use how feelings can result in us be becoming stuck and also how we can influence feelings in such a way that they result in significant behavioral changes so hopefully all of that will become clear when i give the talk for countless eons humans perceived that the earth was the stationary center of the universe and that around us the sun and the stars rotated it was a geocentric belief that we were the center of the universe because that's how it appeared it looked like everything was re revolving around us now of course we know that the earth is just another planet revolving around just another star and that insight vastly changes the way we perceive ourselves and the importance of human affairs and uh, our relationship with the cosmos and even uh of course getting rid of the idea that the earth was the center of everything challenged some of the most basic uh, belief systems of theistic worldviews so um just as it seemed the earth was the center of the universe and the sun revolved around us turned out to be a illusion based on just kind of naive appearances so to the idea that thinking our thought our conscious uh, intentions uh, are the guiding influence of our behaviors that um, thought is a kind of disembodied spirit separate from the body that it controls the body in this idea has no consciousness and this allowed of course the idea that consciousness could somehow survive death of the body and of course it was never uh, explained how a spirit could cause our limbs to move uh, but of course this view is now completely incompatible with uh, that view is known as the dualist view that somehow uh, conscious mind thought is this kind of disembodied spirit that controls everything but is not 
yet not in attached or uh, um, directly correlated to the body. Today we know the mind and body aren't separate at all. Uh, consciousness and thoughts and intentions arise entirely from physical changes in the brain uh, as it interacts with an environment. So we know this. I mean, this became first apparent, of course, uh, for example, when um, the brain is damaged, people's personality changes entirely. For example, the most one of the most famous cases is that of a gentleman named Phineas Gage in 1848 who was horribly injured in a railroad accident. He was uh, and his team were clearing uh, uh, grounds uh, to make the railroads flat. And uh, during an ex a controlled explosion, a rod went through his cheek, up through his brain, out the top of his head, um, and completely damaged his left prefrontal cortex and um his personality just completely changed and people realized then oh there's actually a uh correlation between the things that we experience in our mind and what's actually happening in our brain and of course uh, countless examples since then you could go to any ward of a hospital where stroke victims are being treated and you'll see significant personality changes after people different regions of people's brains have been damaged in stroke or of course tumors can also cause significant personality changes they uh, result in damage to different brain regions and countless theorists and clinicians continue to show just how much all of the mind is essentially correlated with uh, physical events in the brain. Uh, people like Francis Crick and Christoph Koch and Gerald Edelman, famous neuroscientists who uh, showed the neural correlates of consciousness, as well as Eric Kandel noted that in his view that um, the reticular formation, which connects our thalamus to our frontal lobe, is responsible for consciousness. And we now know that there are regions of the left uh, prefrontal cortex and temporal lobe, which create inner thought. So um, it's clear that uh, thought and consciousness and my, our minds are not separate from our bodies or our brains. And uh, Benjamin Labette, one of my uh, favorite neurologists, famously showed that um, the impulses that guide our behavior are not in any way generated by consciousness. Uh, consciousness arises well after behavioral impulses appear. So even though it seems like we're making decisions or or uh, that we're guiding how we respond to events, it's actually all that's being done pre-consciously. Labette still held out 
some hope for consciousness. Uh, he believed consciousness was a last stop ditch way that we prevent really bad impulses uh, from being acted out. So we don't really create any of our behaviors or actions or impulses. They're created by regions of the brain that happen well before we're consciously aware, but conscious is there to go, oh, wait, that's a terrible idea. Maybe I'm not going to say or do that. Maybe I can hold off. So in Benjamin Libet's uh, uh, experiments, he believed that we have what's called free won't, not free will. <laughs> free, I won't do that. So um, how does it work? Well, I'm going to give you a very basic um, kind of summary. And uh, you have to understand that I'm kind of a neuroscience nerd. So I'm going to really try to uh, make this as easy to digest as possible. But it, still, because I'm a nerd, I'll probably make it kind of more complex than you want on a Tuesday evening. But I'll do my best. So the world around us uh, creates very fast reactions in very deep regions of our brain, like the amygdala and the hypothalamus. These are very pre-conscious. Pre they happen well before any conscious awareness. And these regions lead to the secretion of hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, which make us ready to respond to a threat or an opportunity. Or if we're suddenly in a safe environment and the pre-conscious brain decides we can relax, it'll secrete serotonin and endorphins. Or perhaps if we're with someone that is a attachment figure, it'll secrete oxytocin. So anyway, an event in the world creates a very fast reaction and deep region of the brain leads to hormones which enter the bloodstream and then feelings, internal states of comfort or discomfort is how the frontal cortex represents all of these fast changes. Feelings are entirely internal. You don't know what I'm feeling. You don't know right now if I'm feeling... Uh, uh, relaxed or anxious or excited. I mean, maybe an emotional cue will tell you, but most of the feelings are internal. They're based on what Damasio called somatic markers. That might be subtle tension in my stomach. My uh, bloods might circulate faster. My skin might become tighter or more relaxed. Um, uh my my attention might jump more might settle so feelings are states of comfort and discomfort that only i know what my feelings really are and feelings then are signaled to others and acted upon by what we call emotions emotions are how feelings present to others so, for instance, if I see someone that I like become uh, ill or hurt, uh, it might cause a feeling of what's called a dorsal dive. All the energy might go down to my stomach. I might have this pit of 
of uh, of uh, a sense of just uh, a kind of a loss, you know, or and that feeling that arises in me will then be signaled to you. I might l- look sad, cry. If on the other hand, something, someone acted aggressively towards me, I might have a sudden impulse to push back. This is not okay. And then might lead to an emotion of anger, pushing, shouting. If I see someone that I associate with comfort, that might elicit a smile, a signal to them that I enjoy their company and an emotion to bond, to hug, to laugh, to connect. So all these internal states called feelings are manifested by emotions. And that's how, and then finally thoughts arise. (laughs) So thoughts are very, 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 very late in the process. Another thing that's worth noting, um, to make it even slightly more complex, uh, is that um, many of our feelings that arise are not just based on things that are going on around us, but sometimes they're based on things that happened to us in our past. You see, every time in life, a really emotionally resonant event occurs that creates a strong feeling, your hippocampus and your medial temporal lobes store those memories unconsciously in the medial temporal lobe. And for the rest of your life, if anything in your environment reminds you of one of those emotionally stored memories, it'll create your, it'll literally lead to uh, the same process. Your amygdala, hypothalamus will respond to the memory, create the secretion of hormones, and you'll be in a very strong feeling. So, uh, For example, in trauma, when somebody goes through a terrifying event, it gets stored in, of course, uh, the amygdala, hippocampus, medial, temporal lobe. And then if, you know, for instance, we were in a car crash and uh, the last thing before the crash was we heard a honking horn uh, or maybe just the song was on the radio of the car. if we hear that song later on, it will trigger the car crash memory, which will create trigger the secretion of hormones, which will trigger the feeling of being in threat, which will might even trigger us to freeze. So even though we're not in a car, <laughs> even though we're not anywhere near a, a crash, the the fact that something in our present has reminded us of an emotional event from our past can trigger that same process. So essentially each moment can be, can activate a past memory. Sometimes for instance, good things uh, of the past can be activated. You know, um, whenever I, see you know somebody making eating a grilled cheese sandwich it elicits a desire and a and a feeling of of wanting (laughs) because when i was a kid and my parents were 
indulging us, they would allow me and my sister to make grilled cheese sandwiches. Most of the time we weren't allowed to eat them, but on kind of special occasions, we'd either eat that or bagels, um, cream cheese. So those kind of foods elicit positive feelings based on positive events in my childhood. I hope you're following. I'm going to keep going under the assumption that some of this is making sense. So we act in accordance with how we feel. And many of our feelings are not just based on present events, but based on actually memories from our past that are evoked by the present. That's the big takeaway. So I'll give you an example. My dad, when I was a kid, he was kind of a, at times, a really lovable, art, artistic, uh figure but he was also bipolar and a drunk and so sometimes he'd be unbearable and once in a while against my will he'd wake me up early in the morning and drag me to go skiing without any preparation and i'd wind up in the car with this maniac feeling trapped and frightened and we'd be driving 90 miles per hour in the darkness to get to some hill in vermont none of it i wanted to do so um, now, whenever people talk about going skiing, I immediately have this negative feeling in my body, which is, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. No, thank you. So feelings can steer us in the right direction, and they can steer us in the wrong direction. Uh, a good example of feelings steering us in the right direction uh, for example, if you're a musician and you've played uh, the piano countless times, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of times, and then you're jamming with people, you're not going to think what's the right way. You're just going to feel. You're going to just play, improvise. And all of that, those repetitions and those positive experiences and those positive motor movements in your hands, everything will lead to a good performance. If you're a designer, uh, maybe an interior designer, and somebody asks you, should I paint my wall yellow or blue? You will very quickly visualize yellow. And if yellow matches some other wall from your past that look good, you'll have a positive feeling and you'll say, yeah, let's paint it yellow or blue or whatever your favorite color is green. So we're very often trusting fast gut feelings. And if you'd like to read a great book, uh, Gerd Geigerenzer wrote a book called Gut Feelings, where he shows just how often gut feelings can help us make really smart choices and invariably in uh, very fast, smart decisions. But then, of course, feelings can also lead us in the wrong direction. And if you'd like to read about that, there's uh, Kahneman's Nobel Prize winning book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And he talks about how feelings, which are fast thinking in his scope, can lead us to some really poor choices. An example of feelings leading us in the wrong, just a very basic example is, you know, when I was a kid, I got bitten by or or, or somehow got tackled by a big dog and for a long time afterwards i was kind of 
uh, frightened when dogs would come running up to me. And it took a, a bunch of just getting used to it, kind of exposure therapy. I didn't actually see a therapist for it. I just pushed myself to breathe and relax and uh, approach dogs and learn how to interact with them. And now I don't have that response, but for a while it was very difficult. So early events have are very, very, very influential on subsequent adult um, feelings. In fact, um, it's now clear that the earliest life experiences create the strongest feelings that will be the most influential. That doesn't mean we have to follow through with them, but when the right hemisphere is being formed and is being wired for the first time, the early life experiences leave feelings or somatic markers or impulses that are by far and away more influential than subsequent adult events and their feelings. So, uh, the food we loved as children exert really strong positive feelings that can override their negative consequences. Um, and very, as we'll see in a moment, early life experiences can change either positively or negatively how we feel about ourselves. And that has very, very important implications. Now, all of this is found in the Dharma. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha and the Root Sutta said, feelings shape all experiences. And in the Paticca Samapada, which is the very foundation of all of the Dharma itself, the Buddha said that feelings or Vedana precedes all of our emotions our, or emotional cravings, which are tanha, precedes our thoughts and behaviors, which are upadana. So the Buddha himself said that feelings lead to emotions and then behaviors and thoughts. And this is why the Buddha placed such an influence on observing Vedana rising and passing without acting upon it. For him, he saw that feelings, because they were so influential on everything, whether we felt comfortable or comf or uncomfortable, could determine entirely what we thought about someone, who we trust, what we think about ourselves, how we relate to ourselves, whether we pursue opportunities or not, all are based on feelings, not based on thinking. So, um, You know, for instance, and I'll talk more about this, people who are addicted to um, substances or process behaviors um, are essentially chasing after the initial feelings that they first had when they drank or smoked pot or did a drug. The first initial feeling was one of being extremely relieved and safe and comfortable and so even though subsequently countless events might disconfirm those initial experiences still addicts and alcoholics will chase after that initial feeling of being totally safe and if you ever like i have 
for uh, almost 30 years now, been going to AA meetings, then you will hear countless people saying that they spent most of their drinking chasing after that feeling. So intuitively, people know just how important feelings are in all of we talk about gut feelings we talk about following our intuition there's in all of our language this implicit understanding of just how important the way we feel in our bodies are in terms of all the choices we make the buddha noted that the less we are aware of vedana or which is the word for feelings in the pali canon the more they govern us and so it's a very key uh, of key import to become aware of what our feeling states are, especially if we are prone to behaviors that we later regret. And now I'm going to talk about that. Um, a child that received uh, reliable attention begins to associate its very sense of self with positive feelings, which were expressed by its parents. It because the parents mirror a sense of delight and regular attention, the child begins to see in the parent's gaze and in the mirror, it starts to feel good whenever anything, where its sense of self is reflected back to the child. Children with secure attachment, when they're put in front of a mirror, dance and move and smile and twirl, they enact positive feelings in their body. Children, on the other hand, who had unreliable attention, neglect, or whose um, caregiving was often overwhelming, the parent was emotionally dysregulated, or even children who experienced frightening caregiving, uh, parents who were filled with rage or prone to alcoholism, those children begin to associate its sense of self, either with no feeling whatsoever. They look in the mirror, they see themselves, they don't do anything. They just stare like they're looking at a foreign object. Or they might even feel a sense of disgust if they've been abused. If a child feels nothing when it sees, its, when it sees itself in a mirror or when people look at the child or when people say the child's name, if the child's sense of self evokes no positive feelings, um, the child grows up to be an adult that always has to prove itself to others, never feels good enough, has is prone to imposter syndrome. Um, a child that doesn't feel anything when it looks at itself, when you compliment that child as an adult, you say, you're doing a great job the individual won't believe it. They won't be able to take a compliment because their sense of self evokes no positive feeling. So there's nothing to attach that compliment to. It doesn't attach to any feeling in the body. Uh, it'll often give rise to defenses. People who grew up in unreliable caregiving environments or neglect, when somebody gives them a compliment, they'll deny it they won't believe it, they'll often change the subject. People who experience scary caregiving very often wind up uh, either borderline or narcissistic or with um, uh, other cluster A 
kind of disorders or cluster B, which are borderline narcissistic. Um, and these people, when they think of their sense of self, it'll either evoke a kind of disgust, a feeling of revulsion in their body, which is associated with shame. And then they'll protect against that feeling by getting angry with people around them. So they spin between blame and shame, a disgust with their sense of self that's so overwhelming that they now blame everyone around them for that feeling. So um, if we, uh, as a result of our childhood, when we think of ourselves, when, when our self uh, image is brought up when people present an opportunity to us, when we visualize ourselves doing things in the future, when people offer us any kind of, of invitation, um, that lack of any positive feeling will corrupt our belief that we're worthy of inclusion. And it'll lead to a failure of internalizing a sense that we belong with others we'll wind up with a global feeling of inadequacy inferiority and we'll wind up avoiding any kind of a, a situation that's risky we'll become prone to perfectionism or procrastination as a way to avoid uh, situations where we could possibly be disappointed uh, so um, confidence, self-care, self-acceptance, uh, taking advantage of opportunities, moving forward. Um, none of that arises by thinking nice thoughts about ourselves. I mean, we've all heard of this idea that if you look in the mirror and say, you're wonderful, you're great, that that will fix everything. And it would be lovely if that was the case. But the problem is, is that thinking arises far too late in the causal chain. If we want to change um, how we relate to ourselves, how we take care of ourselves, how confident we are, how much we respond to opportunities, we have to change the way we feel about ourselves. So the feelings that are evoked when, we, when our self-image is brought up. So uh i'm gonna later on talk about a practice where we're gonna do that in the meditation so um a couple of other examples before we get to that um of how feelings can lead us in the wrong direction um a child who grew up with unreliable attachment uh, will also begin to associate finally getting attention from a parent with excitement and a kind of feeling of drama because it's so unreliable so in the as that child grows up it begins to associate attachment not with safety not with reliability but with feelings of ah the chase the drama the excitement and so that child will grow up to be an adult who responds to emotionally unavailable partners or partners who are only partially available because the feeling that they've associated attachment with is one of drama not knowing if you're going to get love or attention or not and so the feelings steer the adult towards the entirely wrong kind of partners 
And again, also, I noted how alcoholics and addicts associate alcohol, drugs, disposable sex, pornography, shopping, binge eating, gambling, gaming, uh, all of these activities and substances with the initial feelings that they evoke. A child who becomes addicted to video games does it because their home life is either so dispiriting And finally, they have a game which excites them and where they feel mastery and control their home life. They have no mastery or control. So it gives them a sense of power and a sense of safety and a sense of being, you know, in control. So in adult life, they still will be prone to playing hours and hours of video games. But what if we change the feelings that we associate with addiction. Suppose we don't, suppose we change the feelings from safety or ease or comfort to a negative feeling, like a sense of even a slight sense of disgust that an alcoholic might feel towards alcohol. This actually really works in helping people address addictions. I know from my own case that for a long time when I was drinking, I tried, I believe that the way to give up drinking was the feelings of shame and self-pity after drinking and all the ramifications. But all that did was lead to more drinking. But when I realized that it wasn't my core self that was the problem, it was just the behavior of drinking. And that behavior gave birth to, was associated with a feeling of outright revulsion at the idea of me drinking. Then no longer any shame or self-pity arose. It was simply this sense of you know, I I relate to alcohol the same way now that I relate to seeing uh, uh, you know, a rotting corpse, as the Buddha used that example, or to something that is disgusting, because I don't want to have any sense that myself is flawed, but I do want to associate certain behaviors with uh, outright revulsion, uh, because that's an emotion and a, or a feeling that will keep me from engaging with it. And it has for 29 years. Um, Now, it's worth noting that if people have binge eating, they can't just globally associate eating with disgust. (laughs) That's not healthy. You do have to eat. Uh, But they could visualize just the act of binge eating carbs at night and associate that with a sense of just knowing how badly they feel afterwards, instead of making it about themselves, just begin to associate the image of the behavior with a feeling of, of dislike, aversion, uncomfort. So we can even use negative feelings to lead to positive results in our life. So the Buddha's first solution when it came to feelings was always what he called um, uh, mindfulness of feelings, Vedana Nusaki, which is just observing feelings arising and passing and then waiting until the strong feelings from 
very early life events pass so that we can wait for subtler feelings and have a greater sense of control which feelings lead to which emotions that we act upon and that's of course a very valid practice but there's a second solution he offered which was to use positive visualizations to create positive feelings and associate those positive feelings with our sense of self or our or some behavior a spiritual practice that we want to pursue so for tonight i'm going to lead a meditation that directly addresses how we feel about ourselves it's going to be a, a meditation that is from the buddha's daily recollections 10 recollections specifically sila and kaganusati what we're going to do is we're going to visualize um positive images associated with ways we've been helpful things we'd like to do that would be beneficial to self and others people that care about us and that we care about skillful activities that we'd like to pursue in the future we're then going to also help manifest a positive feeling by putting a hand on our vagal nerve the heart center relaxing our belly uh, we're going to spread feelings of ease and comfort through our body and then what we're going to do is we're going to link it with our self-representation an image of ourself either as a child or as ourself today and the idea is what we're going to try to do is burn in an association between what our sense of self our image our self-representation how it will now hopefully if we do this enough this practice enough will start to evoke positive feelings which will lead in turn in turn towards more confident uh positive self-care in our lives so uh anyway i hope something in there was worth your attention and now let's uh, meditate so uh kindly you don't have to be on screen anymore because if you are you'll probably be self-conscious and that's not conducive to meditation so feel free to either turn your camera off for a time being or put yourself out of the camera's um, scope and find your most comfortable position in this meditation it's really essential to be really 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 comfortable And just reel your attention into your body because if we're going to work with feelings we have to have an a mindful awareness of what's going on inside of our bodies that's where feelings manifest feelings are how changes in our body are known by our awareness So try to find in your 
body right now the most comfortable sensation that might be the breath in the belly or the chest or the tip of the nose or it might be just a feeling you locate somewhere else in your body maybe behind your eyes maybe a feeling of ease the back of the neck or in the palms of the hands. There's no right or wrong place to find an easeful sensation to land your attention. And the more comfortable, the more you'll want to stay mindful of your internal experience. And if you can begin to spread that ease and comfort to neighboring areas of the body. So for instance, if you've found some ease behind the eyes, you might spread with each exhalation and release, you might spread it up to the forehead or down to the cheeks. If you found some ease In your heart center, you could spread with each exhalation it down to the belly, softening the belly. Or you might just find ease and comfort in the movement of the exhalation as it releases muscles. The inhalation expands the exhalation releases. And if you can find ease and comfort with the exhalation, see if you can extend the length of breathing out. See if you can spread the exhalation to wider areas of the body. So try to, while you extend the length of the exhalation, if there's any area of your body that doesn't feel 
particularly comfortable, see if you can use the exhalation and the inhalation to soften breathing into and out of any tension, maybe in the back or the a shoulder, maybe the neck. See if you can use your breath as a way to bring comfort to that area. You can also send positive, simple thoughts to any air of your body that feels tense, like may you be free of stress, free of discomfort, may you feel ease. And just try to also incline the muscles in any area that's tense to relax. The goal is to make your internal experience as comfortable as you feasibly can.
So at this point, we're going to move to the uh, practice. So start by placing a hand, a palm of a hand on your heart center, on your chest, and just feel the warmth of the palm, the hand resting on the vagal nerve. And without forcing it, see if you can cultivate an expression on your face that's either one of happiness or relief or a feeling safe, feeling comfortable, maybe a unforced Mona Lisa half smile if that's available, but nothing that feels inauthentic. I'd like you, if you can visualize, some people can, some can't, either way, if you can't, you can do this through just uh, whispering to yourself words that evoke the scene I'm describing. Visualize the scene in which you feel especially capable or scene where you're helping people, scene where you're positively engaging with another being. It could be an, an animal or a person. And this scene can either be real or imagined, but it should reflect your deepest values of kindness, altruism, if your deepest values is being creative, you could visualize a scene where you're showing your art or your creativity or your craft to someone getting a positive reception. So we're going to visualize a scene where you feel especially effective and keep the positive expression if that's available on your face and the hand on your heart center. And if you can't visualize the scene, just tell yourself in your mind what you would be doing, what, how you'd be of help. or how you'd express yourself. And then for a second visualization, hold in mind an image of someone that you care about or appreciate, looking at you with eyes reflecting or facial expression reflecting back your 
goodness, your kindness, your care, even if you don't believe those attributes fully define you, but knowing that you do have those attributes, just have them reflected back to you by someone. And again, this someone could be real or imagined. It could be someone you really know or a figure that you respect but don't know. Using these visualizations in the hand on your heart center and the positive expression on your face and relaxing your belly. See if you can locate positive feelings in your body and see if you can expand them like energy flowing up and out from your core creating a sense of release and a sense of ease throughout or strength or confidence. And to the degree you can try to amplify these feelings as much as possible. And then to the degree that you've been able to create this positive feeling in your body, the last part of the practice is to hold in mind now an image of yourself, either as you might appear today or as you might have appeared as a child. And all we want to do is just hold that image while we feel the positive affects in our body, creating a felt association, linking our image with this easeful, state of goodness and positive joy or comfort in the body. After all, you deserve to feel positive feelings about yourself. <laughs> 